Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies. I'm Crawford Gribbon, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Don Akinson, Douglas Professor of Canadian and Colonial History at Queen's University, Ontario. We'll be talking to Don about his new book, Exporting the Rapture, John Nelson Darby and the Victorian Conquest of North American Evangelicalism, which has just been published by Oxford University Press and McGill Queen's University Press. Don, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Crawford. It's great to have you here. Uh, I've enjoyed your work for, for, for many years, but, but for listeners' sake, tell us a little bit about yourself. Ah, I, I grew up a Swedish-American lad um, from Minnesota. And you can probably tell that your listeners can because I will speak often very slowly uh, because my people often spoke very slowly. In any case, I grew up mostly in Minneapolis, but spending my summers and all my holidays working on my grandfather's farm, um, I was very lucky in that the first version of what Americans call affirmative action was just happening at the time I got out of high school in Minneapolis. Now, affirmative action then had nothing to do with really what we now think of as diverse or inclusive populations. What they wanted was the Ivy League schools, some reasonably smart, adaptable white boys to people from west of the Alleghenies, west of the Appalachians, to come to Yale in this case. I went to Yale, studied only economics and religion, never took a history course, went to Harvard, uh, got an education degree and then a PhD studying history, and met the world's only you know, well, North America's only historian or scholar with an endowed chair in Irish studies, a man named John Kelleher, just accidentally took a course in graduate school, and this caught me. I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing Irish history. Uh, and that's kind of what I've done, except I keep falling off the path and getting interested in the various forms of Christianity. Is that a good enough summary, Crawford? That's great, thanks. Now, we're talking to you today about your most recent book. Obviously, you've written a great deal, a huge amount, mm-hmm. and much of that has really shaped the field of Irish studies and Irish historical studies in particular. Okay. Uh, we're, we're talking about the second volume in a series of works that you're writing about a particular religious movement. Is that right? That's right. And we could even... You and I could agree what the religious movement is, but in fact... In the historiography of Christianity in the English-speaking world, we don't even know what it's called. But in one sense, I'm interested in what becomes called fundamentalism. Uh, but that's a 20th century term, and I'm a 19th century historian. So mostly I'm interested in kind of a radical evangelicalism in the 19th century. And to find that down a bit more, it's radical evangelicalism that's very small congregation oriented and ultimately apocalyptic. 
And the center of this organization is usually called, I'll use the term Plymouth Brethren, uh, a convenience term. Some of its followers like it, some don't. Uh, but my argument, I guess, is that Plymouth Brethrenism has become the spine of probably most of North American evangelicalism by a path that has been covert, uh, in, not in a nasty sense, but just quiet, uh, effective, and ideologically uh, imperialist, really. It's quite... Plymouth Brethrenism is one of the most successful ideological movements, I think, of the 19th and 20th century. Hmm. Now, in, in your previous installment in this series, uh, a book called Discovering the End of Time, which came out, what, two or three years ago now? Uh, you That's right. You described the founder of this movement as, I think, the fourth most important Protestant theologian. Ah, uh, yes. Or, or <laughs> well, this was, that, that book began with the, kind of, you had always wanted to bring your reader in quickly. And the question was, if you were in an Irish bar, and people, and you're arguing with someone, as people do about religion, would you, who would, who would be the most important Protestants? Well, they're going to be Martin Luther. They're going to be Jean Calvin. But after that, who counts most? Probably, I'd say John Wesley. And then after that, we have a really interesting question. I'd say numbers four and five, they'll tie. Neither one of them gets the bronze medal. But really important people that 200 years from now are going to be looked at as really very, very much more significant than we see them now. Joseph Smith, the founder of the most extraordinarily disciplined religion we have operative, uh, at least in North America, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the other guy, John Nelson Darby, the man you asked about. Darby, uh, well, son of landowning Protestants who had done what landowning Protestants had done at that period, the family, stolen the land from Catholics, who was in the 1820s living in Ireland, going through Trinity College Dublin, becoming priesthood as an Anglican, and becoming part of two things. One is a group of general Protestant view that we cannot let the Catholics have civil rights. We cannot let these Roman papist people have um, the right to sit in Parliament, which is called Catholic emancipation at the time. Okay, that's one of his beliefs. The other is a belief, an attempt to Christianize in the, their vocabulary the Roman Catholics by something that was called the Second Reformation Movement. It's the craziest idea. They really did believe, mostly evangelicals who were Anglican, that they could make Anglicanism the honest-to-goodness religion of the people of Ireland. They were out of their minds. But the frustration these people had and their fear of their Catholics, of the Catholics, helps, I'd say only helps to give rise to a religious sensibility that the world is going to hell and we have to find a way out. And they do find a way out uh, through the Bible. It's through adapting the primitive church, intense, close personal relationships as a balm, as a defensive perimeter. And they develop 
a really coherent, this is important, an intellectually coherent way of looking at the Bible that, among other things, produces what's going to be the ultimate salvation, Jesus coming down bodily from the heaven and bodily rapturing the, the faithful up towards heaven. It's a uh, it's an intermixture of social pressures, great tectonic social changes in Ireland, with a highly intellectual and highly spiritual system. Uh, I do not underrate these people. Uh, I really think the way they coped with their problem is uh, is not, I wouldn't say admirable, but it's impressive. It's extraordinary impressive ideology. Uh, and one of the great uh, religious movements of the 19th century. Hmm. In, in your previous book, you describe the very small, very interlinked social world in which this religious movement began. Yeah, you know, and I do it in some detail uh, because, frankly, religious history tends to avoid talking about rich people. It likes to talk about the virtuous poor. Hmm. This religious... <laughs> you and I read it. You know that this is the case. Sure. Uh, <laughs> this going through the eye of a needle is something that is hard for writers <laughs> to do. Um, but the, the religious group that I'm talking about, the foundational group of brethrenism, dispensationalism, and ultimately the core of fundamentalism, met not by the roadside. They didn't meet under hedges. They met in drawing rooms of so the biggest houses in the most salubrious landlord land in Ireland. This is South County Dublin and County Wicklow. They're meeting in, among other, the most famous house is Powers Courthouse, where the drawing room, the drawing room of Powers Courthouse, where they prayed, they they interpreted texts. They really talked to each other closely. This, it's a drawing room. Yeah, it's a drawing room with a 60-foot high ceiling with the perimeter so large that you could, I've, I've measured it out, you can put an Olympic volleyball court in it and mm. carry off the finals of the Olympics. These were rich people. Huh. <laughs> and, and, and that's one of the things you want to get out um it's one of several themes that runs through evangelicalism um, in general, that there's a lot of rich money, but it keeps its head down. Hmm. Uh, we don't talk about it much in the history. And by the way, uh, what oil company was that funded the publication of the millions of copies of the volume called The Fundamentals? That's right. It was the two <laughs> brothers, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Largest oil company in the U.S. at yeah. that time. It's, it's a constant theme. So I, I do hit that and explain it. And it doesn't in any way affect the validity or invalidity of the belief system, but it does explain the social origin. And and here's a parenthesis, um, brief parenthesis. You and I read a ton of religious history. And one of the things that I think, at least I pick up, is frequently hitting volumes that talk about the history of religion and one picks up a tone of fear. Whenever one gets close to social context, economic context, um, prosopography, you know, family interrelationships, mm -hmm. one gets a tone of fear that 
a prayer that maybe people in the secular world will take this context and say, social cause, it means we've now understood the social clause, so the religion does not mean anything. Mm -hmm. These are totally different intellectual exercises. And I really want to emphasize in this whole sequence of three books that there's to get a hold of it, we need to understand granular social cause and at the same time have great respect for an incredibly complicated intellectual ideological system. One of the really interesting social themes that runs through your book is this issue of class and money. Uh, I was really struck by both your description of the interior of Powers Court, the number of bedrooms it had and so on, but but also your, your, your sense that in some ways these early brethren were, were almost embarrassed by their wealth. Uh, I think at one point you used the expression an ostentatious modesty uh, about their lifestyles. Yeah, that's, that's quite true. Um, now this is we're talking the first generation of brethren, and let's say the ones let's say the ones that run from 1830 to 1850s. Um, yes, uh, as you know, big houses in Ireland, for instance, the kind of houses these people would live in, um, have always hideously cold floors. Mm-hmm. So of course, all good. All, all houses had wonderful uh, hand-knotted Persian carpets uh, uh, and <laughs> things we would lust after today. Well, the classic brethren house, you knew you were in a brethren house. It was a big drawing room, but the floorboards were bare. <laughs> all these carpets had been taken and put in the attic. <laughs> uh, frequently, well, the, the really serious families um, put away the good china and made off re- rewashable pewter plates and mm. sometimes ate with their servants. Yes, they were embarrassed by their wealth. Uh, sincerely. Um, and there's a famous brethren auction in Plymouth in, in the 1830s where they, it's a two-day auction of high-quality silver and gold and ornamental items that the brethren have essentially metaphorically put in the offering plate. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they got rid of their wealth. Now the third and fourth generations, by then it's gone. It's gone down market. Hmm. The theme of money carries through into the structure of the book as well, doesn't it? The, the, the book is structured around a couple of journeys. Um, A.N. Mm-hmm. Gross's journey to Baghdad, J.N. Darby's journey to Switzerland. Yes. Um, right. Gross's journey to Baghdad, tell us about that. It was a faith mission. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the context here is that, that if it, I am really curious how this Irish faith system rich southern Irish faith system ends up owning large chunks of American evangelicalism. Well, the median step between Powers Court and the Niagara Conferences, let's say, of the 1880s and 90s, the median step is one needs to show that there grew up a tradition of faith missions. And these faith missions are different than the big crusades. They're they're very small, self-motivated, self-financed missions that go hard places and try to bring the gospel. Okay, number one faith mission was Anthony Norris Groves, wonderfully, I think, naive man, uh, but immensely faithful. And 
let a crusade, I can only think of it almost like a children's crusade, hmm. that uh, left from Plymouth, England, late 1820s, uh, 1830s, he's managed to make it to Baghdad. Here's how the man made it to Baghdad. He happened to meet, he was going by way of St. Petersburg. He gets to St. Petersburg because a rich friend who he was having breakfast with had another friend who had a yacht, the Royal Yacht Squadron. They they sail to St. Petersburg and go go through all the way down to Baghdad by way of Tbilisi and Bandit Country. There... In great, I mean, first of all, you wouldn't go that way. Let's be honest. It's it's a pretty much the two legs of a triangle, <laughs> hardest way you could go. Naively, decently, God protects him, and he spends a total of like eight years. Anthony Norris Grove working in Baghdad, losing his wife and a child in cholera, serving the people, acting as a medical doctor, and converting exactly two people of whom one was his son. Hmm. Okay, that's faith mission number one. Number two was the beginning of John Nelson Darby going all over the world. But in the 1830s, he becomes a missionary to Switzerland and the, the Protestant parts of, uh, of France um, and manages to last until 1848 when uh, the revolution probably does him in. Okay, those are two reflexes we want to show because, in fact, the third reflex, which it, we see at the end of the second book, uh, the uh, exporting the rapture, and we'll see in the third is Darby decides that the United States of America and Canada, Canada first, is a mission field. It is a mission field just as lost to Jesus as is, say, China to Hudson Taylor. It's a thing exactly of its moment. And one of my problems here, let me admit it in this subsequent volume, is to convince Americans that it's not insulting, to re but they've got to realize that American evangelicalism was not entirely an autochthonous, an autonomous phenomenon growing up in America. It was an imported phenomenon from people who, by people who saw them as religiously backward in, uh, in some cases and barbaric in others. Hmm. Well, you've mentioned this individual, John Nelson Darby, a few times, and obviously he is in the title of the book. What, what kind of a person was he? Summary is this. He was very much like I reimagine the Apostle Paul. Hmm. And my summary of the Apostle Paul, man of John Nelson Darby, would be these are men I would have liked to watch from across the street, but I really would not want to have lunch with. Uh, these are people immensely intense, um, immensely volatile, uh, d deeply committed, and each of them has had a vision. With Paul, directly he reports it's whether it was a physical vision or a, a, a great brain swell, but he reports the vision. Darby constantly talks to God, and not a few times God 
appears to talk to Gadarby. And, okay, that's one. But sometimes we think of religious people like that as mountaintop people. Mm-hmm. Darby only got to mountaintops by walking across them. This was the most in-the-world guy you can imagine. He walked across all of Europe. Um, he, <laughs> I watch him. I'm working on him now in the in the 60s. And he, his 60s, late 60s, and he's, he thinks nothing about going coming across the ocean here and going through parts of the U.S. that you, you can barely, in, in the Great Lakes Basin, you can barely get through on foot. He is an extraordinary tense. I would have seen him, okay, here's an analogy. I see this guy as a spiritual leader who nevertheless probably could have been a, uh, a defensive safety in the National Football League. Hmm. This guy was amazing physical dynamism. Probably about five foot ten, intense, very compact, um, capable all his life to go visit somebody. And if if he had to sleep in the stable without there being a stove, he'd sleep in the stable. Hmm. Uh, extraordinary man that way. Okay, that's one. And that kind of power, that kind of message from God, also means he's incredibly controlling. And this is the part that's very hard to get on with Darby. But you're an Irish historian, and the parallel case of, is Charles Stuart Parnell in mm-hmm. Irish history. That is someone who, while emotionally apparently cold with, when he's dealing directly with others, except when praying, um, nevertheless has some kind of charisma that carries, without shouting, he could carry a group. Mm-hmm. Incredible presence He's kind of like made out of spring steel. He's always a coiled steel, and you think, this guy just could go off right now, and he holds a room. Uh, and um, as someone who's going to bring what is a brand-new religious belief to a, to kind of a sparsely, a sparsely settled continent like North America was at the time, he's perfect. He can work small groups. He works retail. He transmits energy, and he can survive rough conditions. I have a lot of time for John Nelson Darby, even though, as I say, I wouldn't like to have known him very sure, much. Sure, sure. So t- tell us, Don, what, what were these ideas that Darby was disseminating? Ooh. Okay, here's why Darby's important. He didn't. He, whether or not he ever had an original idea, I don't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think he did, but I, this is irrelevant. He would be important even if he never had an original idea, because he put together an entire system which never in Christianity history had existed previously. <laughs> Let's be honest about it. He, um, by the 1830s, he has packaged a, a system that others later smoothed out into doctrine called dispensationalism. But he's put it together in a totally original way. Uh, the It's like the guy who takes all the simple machines and makes them like a really <laughs> levers and screws and all that and puts it into a machine that really works. So where where do you start with Darby? With Darby, his belief system, you have to start just with the Bible uh, because it's not only his greatest source of information, his faith. Uh, it's the predicate for his faith in Jesus. If he didn't have faith in Bible, he wasn't going to have any faith in, in Jesus. Simple as that. Um, and 
parts of the Bible he takes very literally and therefore directively. First one is we all we all must meet in the same way the primitive church met. Basically, the, the, the classic quote is, when two or three are gathered together in his name, there, I, in my name, there I will be also. He, he believes that. So he works small groups, and it means, here's the, I hate the word, but ecclesiology mm-hmm. is the basis of brethrenism. It's, not, um, it's crucial to understand that, because brethrenism always gets talked about as, and dispensationalism as being apocalyptic. No, it's small group and close. Secondly, the Holy Spirit works certain mystical ways, but particularly uh, it is there in a way that is beyond mere physicality when brethren meet weekly, usually weekly, uh, to, to break bread together. All right, what's the theology on top of that? The Bible, though, of course, salvation occurs through substitutionary uh, death of Jesus Christ. But here's the point. You got, he believes in the Bible, but he's not going to read it like anybody else ever has. He splits it into two parts. Um, the part that is intended for the church and the part that is intended for Jews. Now, <laughs> that's, that's great if you're a, a secular hot critic. Yeah, one could read the Bible that way and probably should. But Christianity at the time he's dealing with it, and Christianity today merges the two together and sees a continuing covenant running through it and a continuing narrative running through the, the two testaments. He breaks, breaks them in half, which allows him to split off the, the prophecies that have not yet come to pass, but in a way that the ones he doesn't like, he put, <laughs> I'm, I'm being really crude here, but the, way, the ones he doesn't like, he put, he applies to the Jews only. And the ones that, the big one, Jesus coming back, he applies to believers and does it in a way that is unpredictable. The rapture is going to come like a thief in the night. And therefore, he's got a whole system. He's got a system that starts with belief on the ground and behavior, ecclesiology, and works its way through hermeneutics all the way to apocalyptics. I've been very inept in a way in simplifying this, but um, it's a fantastic system. And once you make, it's very much like dealing with any kind of uh, colporter who's any good. You give him the first Give him the first assumption, and he'll take you all the way to the last. It's pretty amazing. Hmm. So D- D- Darby develops this perhaps in conversation with others in the 1820s, 1830s at Powers Court and places like that. They, come, right. a- they come across to England. Plymouth is a big uh, centre, isn't it? You mentioned already for Brethren activity. Yeah. Um, one of... The- this is going to make me sound like a geog- geographic determinist, but if you wanted to guess simply where Brethrenism from the 18, early 1830s is going to spread, where's it going to go? Take a look at where the packets run, and yeah. they were the easiest place to sell across the Irish Sea. Yep. And it goes to Plymouth, that area. That's all. Yes. And Brethrenism, actually, by middle 1840s, most brethren are in the, in the United Kingdom, in the part that is uh, west of England. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, they have a wonderful, 
wonderful energy-releasing fight. It centers on Plymouth in the 1840s, and therefore, to, to really move forward, by 1849, mm-hmm. you're seeing two branches of brethrenism. One, we'll just call it, quite called open brethrenism. The other, often called exclusive brethrenism, run by Darby uh, in a management system that I think is very close to the technical definition of a cult. And it does this only for about a 30-year period. But as long as Darby is in charge, in a very, in a strange, avuncular way, he runs this group of people, exclusive brethren. And they become a disciplined force that is perfect for invading another country. And that's why he's so important. And for next, the invasion of Canada and then the incursion successful into the U.S., now, when you use the word cult there, Don, you're using it in an academic way with very particular kind of resonance, aren't you? 100%. 100%. Yeah. And Crawford, you're good to notice that because, yeah. look, we one of the problems right now in writing religious history is there's uh, been uh, a... I guess we we think of it as a backfire in the, in the forestry sense that got out of control. Hmm. The word cult has a very useful meaning within historical sociology of Western Christianity. And the names that we all know are Trolch, Weber, and Niebuhr. And they've developed a sequence, really useful descriptive sequence of the cult sect, denomination and church state. Mm-hmm. All different forms of Christianity, all what really Western Protestantism. Now, the problem is these do not map very well on non-Protestant, non-Western groups. So, one doesn't apply them to non-Protestant Western groups, but that we do not throw away this excellent set of tools mm-hmm. within that narrow tradition. Mm-hmm. That said, in, from the 80, 1970s onward, cult became in the media a, a dirty word. Uh, you got James Jones, you got Waco, you got a yeah. lot of stuff. Yeah. And it was thrown out. A lot of people will not use it in a secular sense, and I wouldn't either. I would only use it in this strict ecclesiastical Christian sense. In the, uh, but it's a useful tool, and it's been thrown out pretty much by what's called the, the students of new religious movements mm-hmm. um, who, who do some very interesting work. Um, but what they've lost is an ability to deal with small charismatic groups mm-hmm. because they're, if you're denominator of what a new religious movement is, is that it's new. This is not a great, a very deep description. <laughs> it doesn't help us very much. Um, so, yes, I'm using it in an old-fashioned, very carefully delimited sense, the word cult, the word sect, and the word denomination. And, frankly, I explained this so clearly that any person of goodwill cannot mistake what I mean by it. Now, Don, this is, this is the second of a trilogy uh, of books, I think. Isn't that true? <laughs> Yeah, and I'll accept that, Crawford, as long as you don't call it a trilogy, because I'll call it a three set. <laughs> but the word trilogy scares people, you know? It's like, yeah, and after that we get the, uh, another 
another edition of Game of the Thrones. No, no. I need to, Crawford, I need to complete the story, and I will, which is how entering Canada in 1862, Darby first sets up a, a base in the, the, on the north side of Lake Ontario, where I'm from, where I'm talking to you right now, yeah, yeah. and then essentially infiltrates across the lake in uh, a classic borderland infusion. Uh, and I will get that done within a couple of years, and then I'm going to go do something entirely different. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don, when when you're telling us about this project, the current project, the third book in the yeah. series, not the trilogy, the third book in the series, okay. um, yeah. wh- wh- what are you finding out? Um, what I'm finding out is, okay, I want to be tactful, um, but not too tactful. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm finding out that what Canadians have, and you have to realize I began in Minnesota here, but what Canadians have understood about American historiography, that it is incredibly parochial. The American meaning U.S., it's incredibly parochial. Mm. Okay, one. To specifically, in this case, what is taken as the general history of evangelicalism and fundamentalism in the U.S. is taken as being entirely a domestic U.S. phenomenon, uh, that they get growing out of revivalism mostly. Um, and that is just not a sufficient uh, explanation. It's very superficial because it particularly misses this great ideological ideational system you get imported first from Ireland to England, then from England to to Canada, then from Canada into the U.S. Mm -hmm. And to understand U.S. history, you cannot, and U.S. religious history, you cannot read only U.S. religious history. And so I'm giving you a trajectory, a path, well documented, uh, that is intended to broaden, not upset, but broaden the way historians of evangelicalism in the United States work. Well, I can't wait to see that, Don. It promises to be a brilliant conclusion to this uh, sequence slash series of books (laughs) slash trilogy. Um, Don, thanks very much for your time. I know you're a really busy man. Uh, Thank you for writing this book, Exporting the Rapture, John Nelson Darby and the Victorian Conquest of North American Evangelicalism. And thanks for coming to talk to us about it. Thanks so much, Crawford. Take care. Thank you. Bye.